Makes you want to be there, doesn't it? That's great. Let's pray. Father, those realities that you would walk with us, that we would see you in limitless sight, that there would be no sense of ever being taken away from your presence again or intimacy interrupted. What a joy. Thank you for the promise of new heavens and new earth. Thank you for the promise that we who know Christ will see you. And as we come this morning, we come begging your grace and mercy to have the kind of perspective that fixes the gaze on heaven and causes the things of earth to dwindle. Help us to see aright you and all your splendor so that we might savor the day that we see your appearing. We long for that. And long now that as we open the word, you would quicken our hearts to comply with what we hear for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, shortly after dawn on December 7th, 1941, 62 years ago today, a day that will live in infamy, the United States of America suffered the surprise attack of a Japanese task, uh, uh, strike force sending 2,335 servicemen and 68 civilians to their graves. The attack fleet was made up of six aircraft carriers, 24 supporting ships, and a group of submarines that were to sink any American ships that escaped the strike force. The first wave of fighters were dive bombers and torpedo bombers consisting of 181 planes. The primary targets, Battleship Row. On Battleship Row in Hawaii were the battleships Arizona, Nevada, California, Tennessee, Maryland, West Virginia, Oklahoma, and the retired Utah. Five of them were sunk. All of them were damaged, and America was at war. What is not commonly known about the attack on Pearl Harbor is recorded in the United States Navy Communications Report, which reopened the examination of the breakdown that led to our nation's naval fleet being left vulnerable in one of the greatest surprise attacks ever. And believe me, it was a surprise. Between services, Marv Biddick came up to me, and he was there. And he said he looked up and said, I think we're in trouble. That's a Japanese plane. Totally caught off guard. Totally surprised. Crypto analysts and linguists were stationed on diplomatic machine systems. And transmissions of messages were to be delivered to the naval and military intelligence. And the War Department and the State Department were to be copied on those reports. Those reports didn't make it to Hawaii, though. And they didn't make it to the Philippines. Because Washington wanted to keep that information confidential and not considering Pearl Harbor to be any position of real credible threats, let those warnings go unnoticed. However, on November 24th, 27th, and 29th, uh, the contents of Japanese diplomatic warnings were copied to the U.S. intelligence in Philippines and Hawaii, but they went unregarded. Collectively, these messages contained an alarming record of military movement. Fleet activity was moving forward, and unmistakably hostile intention towards the United States was clear and imminent. And the evidence overwhelmingly suggested that Japanese air and naval strikes against the Philippines and Hawaii were coming. Washington learned of these threats and notified the Hawaiian Navy Admiral, who the morning of the attack, laying in his bed, writing in his journal, wrote these words. Guess war is just around the corner, but I think I'll go to a movie. Washington's limited crypto analytic resources were not focused on the Japanese Navy, where they belonged. In fact, 
The analysts were diverted to other assignments, including monitoring traffic. As a result, they could not read the Japanese Navy cryptographic systems. The lack of overall manpower combined with the attitude of crypto analysts resulted in the failure to read critical messages of the Japanese strike force targeted for Pearl Harbor. Five years later, after the attack, the U.S. recovered over 26,000 transmissions, clear indications that war was coming, that the Japanese were moving, detailed descriptions of their movements and exactly how the attacks would unfold. The actual drills themselves and all of the record of how the attacks should be done were disclosed. Even key espionage information of the attackers themselves, the people within the ranks that were spying on America, all of it unnoted. The greatest surprise attack ever, maybe only rivaled by September 11th, became a day that will live in infamy. And it is a day living in infamy largely because the people who should have known were preoccupied with other things. They knew something was happening but placed too little of a priority to prepare for it. There is another day coming. There is a day that will live in infamy far greater than any surprise attack that was ever launched on Hawaii or in New York City. And if you're not prepared for it, you'll pay a penalty greater than those 62 years ago paid. And moreover, I'm kind of concerned that far too many of us are laying on our beds and writing our journals and wishing we could go to movies rather than preparing for what is coming. And what is coming is detailed in the book of Revelation. Open your Bibles this morning to Revelation. Revelation 22 is where we'll land. Our spiritual radars are too often low or too often down. And the book of Revelation is really a wake-up call to raise the antennas. And I want to do that this morning from Revelation 22. The book of Revelation is the final book of the New Testament, written by the Apostle John from the Alcatraz of the ancient world, the island of Patmos. He's there because he's being persecuted for Christ. And on the day that he writes... It's a Sunday he identifies in Revelation 1.10 as the Lord's Day. He hears behind him the voice of a trumpet, a blast that pierces his ears, turns him around to find himself instantly on the ground before the risen and exalted Lord of glory, the same Lord that he leaned back, of, back on the last night of before the supper, before the crucifixion, the same Lord before whom he was standing as he died on the cross, this Lord risen, exalted, and coronated was now speaking to him. Jesus himself had a message for John. And John was to take this message and disseminate it to the churches of Asia Minor. Seven churches, all but two of which were about to be closed. Jesus himself was about to snuff their candle out. They had been given over to all kinds of sin. Jesus scanned the church and found them to be immoral. Drunk on false doctrine. Lukewarm, spiritually complacent and cold in their love. Sounds a little like the church of today. All of the apostles, except for John himself, who was in exile, had been killed as martyrs. They were gone. The spiritual heroes of the faith had died. And the pastors of these churches to whom these letters are addressed were struggling in their leadership. Each one of them were caving. They were tolerating the sin. They were allowing the churches to go down. On top of that, Satan himself unleashed the greatest persecution probably known since that time. The most intense persecution possible was plaguing these people. Their joy became soggy. Their hope wavered. Corruption from within, torment from without. And what about Jesus? He said he was coming. 
He said that he would be here 60 years ago. Where is the promise of his coming? All the apostles are gone except one, and he's on the last leg. He'll probably die soon. The church is in a chaotic state. Sin has run rampant. The world is attacking like never before. What is the future of the church? The book of Revelation is written to these people. These people needed this. They understood what it was like to be attacked with a flurry of opposition from every possible direction. And they needed the book of Revelation. And the church of today needs the book of Revelation. The church of today is in the exact same position. The church of today is plagued with false doctrine, struggles with spiritual laziness, is apathetic towards the things of God, crazed in their passions of immorality, flippant and out of love for Christ, and further removed than that first century from the promise of his coming. Revelation is a radical wake-up call. Revelation is a call from earthly mindedness and, and a focus on heavenly mindedness. Revelation is the message loud and clear, transmitting the coming doom on earth for the ungodly, and we dare not lower our antennas. John is for us the intercepting communications intelligence. And as he taps into heaven's frequency, he gives us a glimpse of the end. Now, as the end unfolds, beginning in chapter 4, when God removes the church at the rapture, Jesus himself commences the greatest tribulation ever known to man, the removal of peace. Famine on earth, death to one-fourth of the earth's population right off the bat. Terrible earthquakes, the sun and the moon going out, no light. Comets smashing into the earth's crust, geological upheaval of mountains moving, islands shifting their places, the nation's leaders hiding in caves and running, asking for death but not being able to find it. Fiery hailstones crashing into the earth, destroying a third of the the world's trees and grass. One third of the earth's water turned into blood. A third of the earth's river doing the same and made bitter, killing anybody that drinks it. Unleashing of thousands of demons by Satan himself. The demons that had been incarcerated since the days of Noah are unlocked from their pit to unleash torturous acts upon men for five months. Men who will want to die but can't. One-third of the remaining mankind killed by fire and brimstone. The tyranny of an antichrist and a false prophet who deceive people to worship his image. And those who won't receive the persecution of being unable to function within society. They can't buy. They can't sell. Men afflicted with sores. Everything in the sea dying as the sea turns to blood and it rots on the shore. When the sun and the light come again, it comes with furious heat to scorch the men on the earth, followed by a violent earthquake that decimates all the cities of the world, causing the mountains to flatten and the islands to be gulped into the ocean. A hundred-pound hailstones crashing on earth, landing on men to kill them. A one-world religion inebriating men to follow Antichrist to their eternal destruction. A one-world economy that utterly collapses. And the Antichrist who assembles the five superpowers of earth at that time to make war with the Lamb, who himself at that moment bursts onto the scene and with a double-edged sword smites the nations, making all the ungodly food for birds. The river of blood, it's said in the book of Revelation, is as high as the bridle is on a horse. It's a furious bloodbath of tribulation. Christ himself comes establishes his kingdom on earth and reigns as king for a thousand years in Jerusalem and then uncreates it all. Heaven and earth flee away and the ungodly are standing before a great white throne. And the books are opened 
and anyone's name not found written in the book of life is thrown with Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all the demons into the lake of fire forever. That's the end. And the point is, from the book of Revelation, God will not forget his promise to the wicked. His promise will endure. The wicked will pay. But then the book of Revelation takes a wonderful turn. It's as if the horror of all of this leaves our mouths gaping open and Christ himself comes, picks up our chin, and points us to the happiness of the glories of heaven. And what we find is that God does not forget his promise to the righteous. What we find is our home. Revelation 22, verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. The book of Revelation isn't the interesting plot of a fiction series that runs on and on. Revelation is a call for us to wake up, to pull ourselves out of the disarray and the lethargy of spiritual complacency. It's about the end. It's where Jesus wins. It's about the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, beloved, is the target at which the arrow of our hope is aimed. This is our home. This is our heaven. And in this passage, John unveils our hope by turning our attention to five climactic focal points of heaven. And these are compelling. These draw our gaze and our stare away from the world and compel us to look up. They do for us what we need that Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, keep seeking the things above to set your mind on the things above where Christ is, not on things on earth. We're called by God to take our focus off of earth in order to maintain our focus while on earth. Do you remember in the early 90s, they came out with those posters that were fuzzy? They had a border around them and they had those really disarrayed pictures and you had to look at them for a little while and, and pretty soon if you, if you stared long enough, you would see an image begin to emerge. And, and, you know, I remember the first time I saw when I was at the mall and I was really excited about it and I looked there and I said, I don't see anything. And he says, well, no, look a little bit closer. And, and I said, oh yeah, you're right. He said, now, now the way to look at this picture is to, is to, because there was a glass shield on the front of it, look at your reflection in the mirror and then just look right beyond yourself and you'll begin to see the image emerge. And I said, oh, I see it. It's a giraffe. He said, no, it's a stealth bomber. (laughs) (laughs) Said, I don't see it. I started importing my own ideas to fake it, you know, because I was having a hard time. And he said, let me show you what you should be looking for. And he turned the poster over. And on the back was what the image should be. And then he turned it back over and I could see it immediately. And I think heaven is a lot like that. Heaven is so many times for us this this blurry haze and and we import our own ideas and we think we know what heaven is like. And and once in a while, if if we look just close enough... We begin to see something emerge. Well, the book of Revelation is uh, John himself turning the poster over 
and showing you what heaven is and then turning it back over so that you can look beyond yourself and see the realities to come. Looking beyond ourself into the portrait of heaven is the picture that John himself paints for us. He tells us to learn how to look. And as one person said, a good outlook comes from a good uplook. Here's what we have to look forward to in heaven. And what's most interesting about these five focal points that John fixes our attention on is that in some measure, we really don't have to wait until heaven to begin to experience these. We can, as it were, step heavenward now. These are things that can become, and in fact, are a reality in our lives as Christians, which in their fullness find expression in glory. And you can test yourselves by these. You can test yourself to see whether you're stepping heavenward or whether you're spiraling downward. Number one, unlimited access to the fullness of life. Unlimited access to the fullness of life. Look at verse one. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, the most immediate picture that we see, the first thing that comes to mind here is that conspicuous tree of life. That tree that appeared in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were given to eat freely. That life-giving, nourishing, sustaining, eternal life was the very tree that was then forbidden to them when they sinned. God put an angel in front of that tree lest they eat of that fruit and live perpetually unable to suffer the consequences of their sin, which is death. God put an angel and said, you will have no longer access to the tree of life. And as a result, you will die. God took away life from men in heaven. It appears again, which shows that God in this new world, this new order has brought life back to men. When the wages of sin is death and, and separation from God, God brings us life eternal. And the tree itself is described as having a, a life standing provision. It, we will partake of fruit. It says, which are, which are described as having 12 different kinds of produce, a new fruit each month. And I guarantee you, this fruit makes Harry and David look like a box of hard, stale raisins. <laughs> and even its leaves are beneficial. Verse 2, its leaves are for the healing of the nations. The nations who come in in chapter 21, verse 24, will be forever well, always free from injury, always free from sickness and all the decaying effects of sin. Because this new world order has no sin. And notice that this tree of life is nourished in verse 1 by the water of life. The picture is a, a throne which God sits on and from which a long street follows. And this water of life flows down the middle of the street like a channel and nourishes this tree of life which springs up and bows over onto both sides of the riverbank. So that whoever is on whatever side, wherever you are in heaven, this tree extends for you to draw from. And this tree itself is watered constantly by the water of life. Now, this water of life appears in chapter 21 and describes, again, the same principle of eternal life. All through the Bible, God's eternal life has been described as the water of life. Jeremiah 2, fountains of living water, as opposed to the broken cisterns of sin. There are no cisterns in heaven. This is an ever-flowing river of life coming down from the throne of God. It is, according to Revelation chapter 7, where Christ, our great shepherd, will lead us so that we might drink freely, as Psalm 23 says, beside the quiet waters. Eternally quiet 
eternally flowing, eternally life-giving and sustaining, nourishing eternal life in heaven. All coming down, verse 1, from the throne. Now the throne is designated by John as that place in heaven from which the Father and the Lamb reign. Two people sit on this throne. God the Father and Jesus Christ. And I think why John puts this in here and why God shows him this image and the way that heaven is set up is to show one thing. Life isn't the result of a tree. Understand that. Life doesn't come when you, you pick fruit off a tree. Life comes from God. And the throne itself, the, the emanating eternal life flows from God and from the Lamb. It, you have life because of God and because of the Lamb. And it nourishes you and you partake of its fruit in a wonderfully satisfying provision that sustains you forever. This is heaven. And there is unlimited access to this tree. There is no angel with a flaming sword swinging, threatening you if you come near. This is an invitation to come and take from that which proceeds from the throne unto eternal life. But you know what? Eternal life isn't something you have to wait to heaven for, is it? Eternal life is a reality here and now. My mind is drawn back to John seventeen three, where Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, this is eternal life. What? That they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what eternal life is. It's about knowing the Father and knowing the Lamb who are on the throne. That is what eternal life is. And as often as you partake of the tree of life, it sustains you to be able to have access to God and to know Him. And you don't have to wait for heaven to know Him. You don't have to wait till heaven to develop the relationship with Him that you were created to know and enjoy that sin robbed. The abundance of life that John 10 talks about is given to you in unhindered access. You can step towards heaven and enjoy the fullness of life now, which will be brimming in heaven. Well, you say, well, how can I do that? How can I pursue the fullness of what life really means here? What steps do I need to take to know the fullness of it? Well, John adds a second feature of heaven for the answer. In heaven, we have number two, the untraceable removal of the curse of sin. It's wonderful. The untraceable removal of the curse. It's gone. Look back at verse 3. And there shall no longer be any curse. He just says it so simply, doesn't he? No longer any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. To say there is no longer any curse is an astounding statement because for there to be no longer any curse in heaven means there has to be no longer any what? Sin. Sin is gone. Your greatest enemy and my greatest enemy is gone. No longer in my life will I have that bent, that impulse, that pull towards sin. It's all gone. Your tempter will be swimming in the lake of fire. You wouldn't be able to be tempted even if you wanted to be tempted. But you won't. Temptation is gone. Sin is gone. It is blotted out. As a glorified believer, you will not have the ability to sin. You couldn't. God guarantees that. No sin. No curse. Lust is gone. Pride, selfishness, rude words, the fear of man, 
anger is gone forever. It will be utterly foreign to your existence. Sin. You will have a capacity on that day totally unlike what you have now. Now you have this inward pull and you're trying to cage the passions of the flesh. There the flesh is eliminated. When Paul asks the question in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? He was looking for this day. Who will set me free from the body of this death? I'm, I'm, I'm shackled to a corpse whose, whose decay is setting into me and who is overpowering me and killing me, he says. And in heaven, it's gone. To be free from the corruption in your heart, to be free from that invading robber called sin who stole away the opportunities you had to glorify God, he will be gone. God will wipe out sin. God will wipe out the curse. As far as the curse is found, he will wipe it out. And not by scrubbing you or scrubbing the earth clean, but by giving you a whole new body and by uncreating, destroying, and creating a new one. He destroys the old and brings down a new, the one spoken of in this passage, the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 20 verse 11 says that God uncreates and throws away the old. And notice what else he says in verse 3. He says the throne of God will be in it. Now he just told us that in verse 1. Why mention again the throne of God in connection with the curse? Well, in order for God to be there and for his reign to be established, there must be the swift judgment on sin. Sin must be gone. God's glorious presence cannot abide in the presence of sin. Either sin goes or he goes. And in heaven, sin goes. All sin goes. If God is there, sin must flee. And because God is there and because God is on his throne, that perfect rule will never terminate. It will never end. His perfect will shall always be done by everyone in heaven. What must that be like? What must it be like to have sin removed without a trace? Well, I think you could see stepping heavenward might mean dealing with sin now. If, if heaven is a reality where sin is not, I can, I can bring heaven down now in my life in some respect by dealing with sin, by putting it out, by scrubbing myself from the sin that so easily, Hebrews says, easily entangles us. Removing the presence of sin from our life by dealing with it, by repenting of it, by turning from it and embracing Christ in the fullness of what life is, drawing from his resources, scratching and clawing and fighting to be free until one day we are. And you see a person who throws up their hands and says, I'll wait till heaven to be holy. You won't like heaven. Heaven is where holiness is. And if you live in sin, heaven is will be very unattractive to you. You won't want to be there. In fact, you may want to assess as whether or not you're going there. Because heaven is for the holy. And God will see to it that he makes us this way. And you say, well, if I'm not sinning, what am I going to do? <laughs> Our whole existence is so tainted with sin that we're not going to have any idea what to do up there. What is it going to be looking like that, that we as glorified, redeemed people don't sin anymore? What must that, what must that existence be? Well... John adds a third feature, a third focal point to gaze our minds on. Number three, the untiring service 
with the redeemed of God. Look at verse 3 again. After he says there's no longer any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, his bondservants shall serve him. Service. That's what we'll do in heaven. Our life in heaven will be, will be serving the king, the highest privilege on heaven. You say, what about my mansion? I thought that was my reward. A real estate on the streets of gold. What about that? Am I, I thought I was going to be six down and two to the left. Your reward is the privilege of serving the king. There's no greater privilege than that. There's no greater privilege than being asked by him to do his will and the ability to do it perfectly and quickly and out of pure motive. Nothing better than that. If that disappoints you, and you think, well, what about my mansion? You check your heart. The joy of serving in heaven, being in the king's presence is the joy. And you say, well, what was my service going to look like? Well, the Bible seems to indicate that, that your service there is somehow proportionate to your faithfulness here. To the degree that you are faithful with the things that God has entrusted to you here, he will give you greater capacity, Matthew 25 says, there. And so you want to know what you're going to do in heaven? Perfectly what you should be doing here, only to a greater and eternal, more eternal capacity. But what, what John concentrates on this passage is not so much the what we're going to do, but how. And the how is wrapped up in this little word in verse 3, bondservants. Bondservants is one of my favorite terms in the Bible. It means to be a voluntary servant. Motivated in my service out of nothing but love. No coercion needs to be forced upon me. You don't have to twist my arm in heaven to serve the Lord with pure motives. I, I hear so many people complaining and asking the question, should I serve God if I don't feel like it? I mean, I, after sitting in heaven, uh, you know, looking at heaven and thinking the privilege that it is to be with the king, you're not going to ask that there. So don't ask it here. A bondservant, heavenly service, is the ability to say, God, because of who you are, because of what you've done and what you mean to me, how could I lose, how could I do anything else? Lose me, God, in service for you. That's what heaven is about. That's the joy of heaven, is being lost in the wonder of worshiping and serving the king there's nothing greater than that. And if somehow serving doesn't appeal to you, heaven again will be drab and boring. And you can, end it, you, you can tell whether or not heaven really appeals to you by the faithfulness of your service here now. Functioning in those capacities to which God has called you and exercising them with delight. Not murmuring and saying, well, what happens if, is it wrong to serve if I don't want to serve? Yes, Settle that question now and hear the rebuke of Deuteronomy 28, verse 47. He says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and with a glad heart for the abundance of all things, you shall serve your enemies. Hell is the place for uh, wicked and lazy, unmotivated servants. According to Matthew 25, those who are thrown into outer darkness. But see, this is a step that you can take heavenward. You can prepare for heaven by your serving now. Your service here is the dressing room for eternity. 
and your ability to glorify God and, and take the gracious gifts he's given to you to impact eternity, you right now by your gifts are working for heaven and eternal things, things that will meet you there when you leave everything else here. And if you can't be motivated to use them here, then what do you think will make heaven joyful to you? I think you see from the text here that being in heaven is a privilege. And so often we get so caught up in our, our eternal reward. What's my reward going to be? We do that and we forget that it is just a privilege to be there. Just to be there. We don't deserve to be there. And somehow we take that for granted and, and, and we get so excited and our materialism comes in and says, Oh good, well, well what can I do to get more? And when we learn that it's an opportunity to serve God, we say, Oh, Maybe heaven's not as glorious as I thought it once was. We look at heaven with selfish eyes. Mansions are not what make heaven. God is. And that's why John gives us the most wonderful picture of heaven of them all. Number four, the unbroken intimacy with the God of glory. Unbroken intimacy. With the God of glory, look back down at verse 4. And, and as you read the line, worship God. And they, who are they? His bondservants, the ones who serve him. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. This is the best part. Forget the furniture. Forget the angels. No offense, but forget the redeemed of old. God's here in heaven. And you see his face. You see his face. What must the face of God look like in heaven? God, the invisible God, the God about whom it is written, no man has seen God at any time. This is fulfilling the promise that Jesus gave in Matthew 5. Those who are pure in heart, Matthew 5, 8 says, shall see God. And we, as glorified people, when God purifies us and cleanses us, we get the full blaze. And are able to do in heaven what on earth we could never do, and that's see him face to face. Do you remember Moses in Exodus 33? He says, I want to see your glory. And God says, you couldn't handle it. God himself has to, has to uh, uh, slow down and, and lower the blaze of his glory and stick Moses in a rock to protect him so that when he passes by, he just gives him the afterglow and then takes his hand off and lets Moses see just the, the dimming part. You want to you teach your kids what that looks like? Parents, take them home tonight. And in their rooms, when it's dark outside, make sure all the curtains are shut and it's black outside. And uh, uh, have the light on, the, the biggest light that you have. And, and tell them to close their eyes so that their, you know, their pupils dilate and, and, and they, they see no light. Leave the light on. And when you say open, flip the switch. And tell them to look and find the light. The beams that have left the bulb and are traveling to their eyes in that millisecond is like what Moses saw. That's all he could handle. That's all that we as sinful men could handle. That's why every time somebody saw God, they hit the ground. They were spitting teeth. The gravel, they were on their face so hard, the gravel became their teeth. Remember Samson's parents? We've seen the Lord, and today we're going to die. Why? 
Because you can't see God, he said to Moses, and live. Exodus 33 says, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. You don't understand what you're asking for, Moses. If you see my face, you will be incinerated. You will die because, Moses, you are a sinner. You are my choice man, but you are a sinner, and you cannot see my face. You know what happens in heaven? You see his face. Unbridled blaze of God's glory emanating from those eyes that burn like a flame of fire. Whereas now we couldn't even blink and survive. There will have an unhindered glaze into them. Like a solar eclipse. Just in the same way that you watch an eclipse and the, and the fringes of the light of the smallest beam are damaging to your eye. Even so now on sinful soil as fallen men and women. We could not sustain God's glory. But here understand that you will bathe forever in endless light. The light of the glory of God. From flowing from his face, his very face. And you think, what, what will that look like? I mean, what would it look like to see God's face? What would it look like if your son was in Iraq? And what would it look like if you had letters from him and you heard that he was coming and then he got a ticket? I'm talking about Robert Michelle Hain here, their son. Yesterday, from Iraq, I was looking in the kitchen window, sticking his face in the window, scared him half to death. What do you think that might be like, ladies, if that was your husband? That was your son. What do you think it would be like to hear that the war is intense and raging, and you weren't sure if he was going to make it? In harm's way. And you get a letter that says, I got my ticket in hand. And I'm going to be coming home. And so you go to the airport to meet him. And you're standing there. And you see him getting off the plane. What will your face look like? What will his face look like? That is what heaven will be. In the presence of God. Now how can God do that? You know why God can look in your face in heaven? Because on the cross... He turned his face away from his son. Jesus cried with a shrieking voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment in judgment, God himself turned his face away from his beloved son and treated him as if he committed your sins. So that then he could turn his face to you in a limitless blaze of glory, shine with his favor forever. This is heaven. And he just says it so simple. They'll see his face. We'll see his face that day. Your sin, you bear it no more. You remain forever in his favor, favor, bathing in his glory. And that is intimacy. It is intimacy to look into the face of your son and to hug him tight and to say, welcome home. You belong to him. And John emphasizes our intimacy in another way in verse 4 by showing the level of intimacy we can have by saying that he writes his name, God's name, on our foreheads. This was a promise given to us in Revelation 3.12 that if we overcome, God will make us a pillar in the temple and we will not go out from it anymore. And listen to what he says here. God says, and I will write on him. That's you and that's me. 
I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven out out of heaven from God and my new name. God is going to write all those things on your forehead. Now, what does it mean to write something on the forehead? In the ancient world, writing something on the forehead was the way you indicated ownership. You belonged. This would be a public acknowledgement of belonging to God. In heaven, God will publicly acknowledge that you belong to him. You're his. And he is yours. And forever it will be the expression of this, this belonging, this oneness, this unity that will never be interrupted or fractured again will be yours. And you can think how precious this would be to the tribulation saints. Remember the tribulation saints? Somebody wanted to write something on their forehead. Remember what it was? The mark of the beast. The Antichrist says, I want to write and etch my name on your forehead. And God said, no, that is mine. And for us to take on ourselves the ownership of another other than God is to deny him. But God says, don't worry, you're sealed. I have written my name on your forehead. And in a world where they want to steal your identity away, in a world where you may think that you are lost and that I might never find you, my name is on your forehead and I'm coming for you. I was thumbing through the Jessica Lynch story when I was in Barnes & Noble a couple of weeks ago and just reading through the, I read, you know, moved to the chapter where they found her. And it's very interesting, if you've ever served in the military, you know this. The one thing they tell you is if you go into combat and you're captured, the one thing to remember, when they brainwash you, when they wipe everything away, and they try to steal your memory, and they try to put thoughts into your head, hold on to one thought. You know what that thought is? We're coming for you. No matter what happens, don't let them tell you that we won't come. Because we're coming. Because Jesus has written his name on your forehead. He's coming for you. And nothing will alter that reality. You belong to him. One of the officers who picked up Jessica Lynch took his badge off of his sleeve. The mark of identification of the United States military. And put it in her hand. She said later, I held on to that as tight as I could. Nothing could take it from my hand. And this is the promise and the hope that you have. And this is the promise and the hope that you need. When sins, uh, flurries are coming at you. When the fiery arrows of the enemy are tempting you. When your own despair wants you to walk away. Remember your hope. And remember that he's coming for you. And he's coming to bring you to himself. That where he is, there you may be also. Unbroken intimacy. You say, well, how can I put that on now? How can I step heavenward now? Well, number one, long for it. Long for it. And know that First John 1 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we shall be, but what we know when we see him, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Intimacy with the Lord right now is something that we have to work to cultivate because of the presence of sin. Sin separates us from God. And the God of glory, the God who is invisible to your eyes because you can't handle it and I can't handle it, has revealed himself in the scripture. Philip said one day, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus said, you've seen the Father when you've seen me. 
Look at Christ. Look at God on every page of your Bible. And look not with the human eye, but with the eyes of what? Faith. And do what 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you do not see him now, you love him. And rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You don't have to wait to heaven to enjoy intimacy with him. The thing that you have to remove is unconfessed sin. That's the one barrier that separates our intimacy with God, that precious fellowship. Our eyes get off of him. Our, our eyes of faith get tickled by things of the world, and we lose perspective. We, we're once having caught a vision of heaven in that puzzle. We, it all becomes blurry again, and we have to refocus ourselves, and that is the process of repenting. And the question is, if you're stepping heaven, where do you desire this? Do you long for this more than anything else? This is the best part. Unlimited access to the fullness of life, untraceable removal of the curse of sin, untiring service with the redeemed of God, unbroken intimacy with the God of glory. And as if all this was not enough, John adds a final glimpse of heaven, the focal point, number five, an unending reign with the Lord of all. The unending reign with the Lord of all. Look back out at verse five. And there shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Night and darkness. They were actually part of God's original intended design. There's nothing wrong with light, and there's nothing wrong with darkness. There's, there's nothing wrong with the sun. In fact, he's not saying that these things aren't in heaven because they're sinful. What he's saying is we just don't need these. You remember in in the first original heavens and earth, when God started it all, the first thing he did was separate the lights so that we could have lights to govern us by the day and lights to govern us by the night. And there was day and night. And every single day since then, we've had the testimony of God's faithfulness that light and darkness are there. So there's nothing intrinsically wrong in light and dark. All he's saying is we don't need them because the God on the throne who reigns, his glory himself personally illumines us. He is the illuminator. There are no shadows in heaven because everywhere heaven is, the beams of God's glory touch. There's not a corner of heaven that's not touched by God's glory. There's not a single spot that has a shadow on it because God's glory fills the whole thing because he reigns there. He reigns in heaven. The king himself will have a radiance coming from his perfect throne, filling every possible corner And in the tribulation, this would be precious to those people who had the sun go out and the moon go out and they couldn't see. And men are groping around in in darkness, trying to feel their way around. And and all of the earth is in upheaval. So all their electricity is blown out and they can't see. They stumble over and fall. And and heaven says there's no stumbling. And even after the fall, darkness had a whole new connotation, didn't it? Darkness is where people hid The cloak for evildoers was darkness. People could hide behind the darkness. Tend to be scared of the dark. There are uncertain things in the dark that the the illumination of light runs away. We, We know this in L.A., don't we? We walk to our car at night. We're looking all around us. We walk in the day. There's no problem. There are unknown things, scary things concealed in the dark. Not so in the new order. Nothing is veiled. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is ambiguous. Nothing is frightening. Nobody will ever lurk in the shadows again. And night in the old order was a time where we would go to sleep. 
It's a time in this life where we close down, most of us do, and we refresh our bodies and prepare for the morning. But imagine a world where in an untiring body, you have no need to go to bed because the more you work, the stronger you become. You don't need the night to rest because in heaven you're glorified and you have unending perfect service to God as you reign with him. I find it interesting that hell is described as a place of outer what? Darkness. Thessalonians tells us away from the presence of the Lord and his glory. God's splendor is eclipsed in hell, but it's unleashed in heaven. And that's because the sovereign reigns here. And that fact is clear. And more than that is the reality in the last part of verse 5. And they, they who are illuminated, they who partake in this bath of glory will reign forever and ever. You remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God made man originally to do what? To rule, to reign. He was to bring the whole created order into the submission of the will of God over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and everything that crawls and everything in the sea. He was to reign over and rule over. And in his sin, he took his delegated authority and handed it to the God of this world. In heaven, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, when he returns, reestablishes his rule. And he doesn't lose it. He doesn't give it away. And then once again, he turns and entrusts it back to us. And we reign forever and ever. Why the forever and ever? You might be tempted to think, is somebody up there going to blow it again? Right? Do you ever think that? I've thought about that. Is somebody going to mess it up? I mean, is there going to be another tree? And is somebody going to pull it down? And are we going to send this whole thing back? No. Forever, and he says, in case you didn't get it, and ever reign with the king. And that's plural. We will be there. We will serve him. We are his bondservants. Thinking about leaving and going to Ohio, I've thought a lot about that. And, and, and we talk about, well, see in heaven and, and those kinds of things. But looking into heaven and seeing what we're going to share together, we can make it. We can make it. We can press on to eternity. This is the guarantee that we will partake forever in a righteous reign of peace, justice, righteousness, and equity. And this reign requires the presence of the king. And in fact, the king of kings himself establishes it. But until he's here, the perfect will of God, his rule in the hearts of men is not. That's a coming day. And so how do we step heavenward here? Well, you can talk about the rule of reign in God in your own life. You can talk about bringing heaven down and praying, Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. You can pray, Lord, bring your kingdom. Because when you bring your kingdom, there is justice, there is righteousness. Sin is dealt with and sin is removed. Bring that day. But you know when that day comes, there is one thing coming with it. And that is wrath for those who do not obey the gospel. And so there is a way you can step heavenward by taking the message of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and bringing it to bear on people and calling them to willingly submit to him as Lord. Philippians says one day, every knee will bow. Those in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's everyone. Some people will do it willingly out of worship and some people will do it reluctantly because God will break their legs in order to put them on their knees. 
He's coming as Lord. And you have the privilege of not only submitting to him as Lord, as a kingdom citizen, awaiting the fulfillment in heaven, but in calling other people to submit to God's authority and come under through believing the gospel, by believing that Christ died for them, by believing that the hope of heaven and everything that we have described can be theirs if they will turn from their sins, confess him as Lord, trust that he and he only can save, that his death as a substitute for us was not in vain, that it was for them. And his resurrection from the dead guarantees that they will rise either to life or to death. And they can have all of this. What a day this is going to be. A day that will live in infamy. Do you want it? Do you long for it? Let's pray. Father, what a treasure heaven is. What a joy that we will see your face. All of the presence of sin will be gone. Sin will be undone and removed. We won't cry. We won't weep. We won't long for anything else other than the fullness of you. And the joy about heaven is not so much that we see each other, but that together we see you. And you have done this. Your cross has done this. And for that, we praise your name. I pray for this dear and beloved church. I pray for the people who belong to Calvary Bible and the people that will be affected by the ministry of Calvary Bible Church. I pray that every person here would reach heaven's shore. I pray that there would be none here that fall short of the grace of God. And Father, in your own good way, cause us to step closer and closer and closer toward that day. Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump resound, and the Lord yourself descend. Even so, we pray with John, come Lord Jesus, for the sake of your own glory and the righteous reign of Christ. All God's people said, Amen.